Well, I'm excited this morning to be sharing about the sanctuary. And um, I, thought, I thought it might be wise for us to start with a little bit of revision of what we've gone through last week. Because the, the concept of the sanctuary is a very, it's a compact picture that is, that is rich with depth, yeah? And as we look at this, this picture of the sanctuary, I think it's really important that we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. Because the sanctuary is all about Jesus from start to finish. And so as we look at that this morning, I just invite you to keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. How can I draw closer to Jesus through the model of the sanctuary? Heavenly Father, I just wanna pray again that you fill us with your spirit and that you speak to me and through me, that we may all hear from you, Lord. Just put me in the dust and let Jesus be lifted on high. Amen. So last week we started, we're in our series, You Lost Me at Leviticus, and we did the first series of the podcast last Thursday night, was it, Eddie? Yeah, I think so. I think so. That's right. So you can check that out if that's of interest. If you want to dive a little bit deeper into any of these subjects, follow that QR code and you can listen in on a little bit more of a discussion about that. Last week, Quinton shared on the courtyard of the sanctuary. We're going to review that in a moment. And this week, we're talking about the holy place. Next week, Quentin is back talking about the most holy place. And the week after, Andrew will be sharing on the feasts and festivals from the book of Leviticus and how all of these things kind of give us some, some, some depth of meaning to understand what Jesus was doing from the lens of the Old Testament through the lens of the sanctuary as we look through this picture. So by way of revision, we looked at the sanctuary last week and here's a couple of key points that I want us to have in the back of our mind as we start looking into the holy place today. So check this out. Point number one, the sanctuary was a small tent in its original wilderness form that consisted of a number of areas. And this sanctuary was placed in a location which was where? Do you recall? It was right in the center of everything. And the reason that God gave for why they were supposed to build a tabernacle or a tent or a sanctuary was given in these words. Exodus 25 verse eight says, and let them make me a sanctuary for what reason? That I may dwell in their midst. God's desire from the beginning of before creation even through to the end of the book of Revelation through the recreation of the world is that he may desire, his desire may be fulfilled by dwelling with us. Isn't that a beautiful thought that God wants to dwell with you? And I love this picture. And so the way that God did this was through the sanctuary. And in this picture that he showed us last week, you have the sanctuary right there in the middle, surrounded by the Levites and the priests. And then on the outside, we had three tribes on each side. And so that every day when you got up and you walked out of your tent, the million odd people that were in that camp, talk about a big camp, right? They walk out and every morning your tent was faced towards God's tent. And you could see every day that God's presence in the cloud by day and in the light by night was present among your people. And I love this concept that their whole community was surrounding the center, the epicenter of God's presence. Now, a couple of key things that came out of that. From that, we looked into the courtyard. And you can see here that there were, you know, the wilderness tabernacle was one tabernacle, but then they rebuilt it with Solomon's temple, etc. We won't go into that. But what's fascinating about this is as we move into the segments of the, court, of the, the sanctuary, you have the courtyard on the outside, 
And the two key elements that were in the courtyard were the altar of... This, is, this wasn't a rhetorical question. This is a test. It was the altar of sacrifice. There we go. And then beyond that was the funny word, the laver, which was a big basin of water. So the courtyard had these two elements in it, and these were symbolic of the sacrifice, the life, death, resurrection, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The waters of baptism by which we enter into this relationship with Jesus. And I love the way that Quinton said it last week where he said, the blood, how did he say it? I'm having a mind blank. Blood is life taken and the water is life given. Jesus' life was taken so that we may receive life. And he ended with a powerful quotation by C.S. Lewis from a book called Mere Christianity where he talked about the desire of God's heart is so that he may not just dwell in a tent among a bunch of people in tents, but that he might dwell in you, that he might dwell in me and that we might become living temples, right, in a sense, a living sanctuary where God's presence is working in and through our lives on the daily. But the question that I have as we look at that is how in the world does that take place? How do we get this experience where God's presence is living in us and where we navigate through. And that's where we jump into the holy place today. So this week, I got a question for you. I love questions, I love interaction. So raise your hand nice and high, don't be shy. If you have ever heard a song, any musical people in this group? I know there's a few of you. Raise your hand nice and high if you've ever heard a song that has literally moved you to tears. Look around you. Look, these are the emotional people like me. (laughs) I heard a song this week that has become a favorite of mine over the years. It's a song by a band called Switchfoot. It's one of my favorite songwriters is John Foreman. And this song is called Restless. Anybody heard this song before? Oh man, you gotta go hear this song. I wanna share with you the last verse of this song and forgive me if it moves me to tears because it often does. The song talks about this picture of restless searching, this longing that has not yet been fully satisfied. And I love the way that the final verse just kind of hones this idea in. It says, I can feel you reaching, pushing through the ceiling until the final healing. I'm looking for you. Until the sea of glass we meet, and the sea of glass in the Revelation says that this is in front of the throne of God where all of the saved will stand before Jesus and cast their crowns at his feet at the end of all things until the sea of glass we meet. At last, completed and complete, the tide of tears and pain subside and laughter drinks them dry. Do you get that picture in your mind? He says, I'll be waiting, anticipating all that I aim for, what I was made for. With every heartbeat, all of my blood bleeds running inside me looking for you. Looking for you. And it comes back to the chorus that says, I am restless. I am restless looking for you. And when I hear that song, I just resonate it with so much. I resonate it with it so much. Because if you're a follower of Jesus like me, by far from, far from a perfect one. There comes this moment that's described very clearly in the sanctuary 
where you go from this place in the courtyard where you have accepted, you have seen the sacrifice of Jesus, his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection on your behalf, on my behalf, and you have confessed and repented and professed belief in the name of Jesus Christ. You enter into the waters of baptism. You've gone through that, that first phase of atonement, right? This phase we might call justification. Can you say that with me? Justification. That's a big, fancy theological word that just simply means this. It means to be freed from the penalty of sin. I was guilty and I have been covered. That's justification. And if we skip to the end of the picture, you get another fancy word called glorification. What was the word? And to be glorified means to be freed from the presence of sin in the universe. But there's this challenge that you and I face, and that's that if we have found Jesus, we have accepted what he has done for us, we've confessed our sins, we've, we've acknowledged our guilt, we have repented and turned from sin to Jesus Christ, we've, we've accepted him as our personal Lord and Savior. But the fact is, you and I have not experienced this glorification, have we? We have not experienced the moment where Jesus parts the clouds, comes in the sky with the multiplied millions of angels to come and to bring righteousness and justice to this world and to eradicate sin forever to give you and I a new body that is not plagued with the war from without and the war from within. And here's the reality that strikes me as I was listening to this song. Even as a follower of Jesus, Paul writes about this in Romans 7. He says, oh, what a wretched man that I am, right? This body of sin, I, I wanna do what's right and in me is the will to do good, but not the power to do good. Who will save me from this body of death, Right? This idea of being in between justification and glorification, and this is where the life of the Christian is lived. The process between being freed from sin's penalty and the blessed hope that we're waiting for from being freed from sin's presence in the universe. No more war, no more rape, no more violence, no more lies and deception. Well, if I look around the world around me, I don't see that yet, do you? And so we are living in what I would like to call the in-between. We are the kids of the in-between. We're the children of God. And by extension, we are the children of the in-between because we have received justification in Jesus' name, but we have not yet received the freedom from sin's presence from without and from within. Is that, is that, is that hitting home with anybody? Okay. Now, I skipped one word, one more fancy word for you, and then I'll do my best to skip all the fancy words, okay? The word in the middle is called sanctification. What's the word? Sanctification. To be sanctified, and this word shows up all throughout the book of Leviticus, means literally to be set apart. Another way it's translated is holy, different. And what we're talking about today is this aspect of the sanctuary system because justification was symbolized in the altar of sacrifice and the laver because that symbolizes Jesus' death and resurrection and accepting that through baptism and confession. The most holy place with the Ark of the Covenant represents God's judgment, which will finally be executed and sin will be removed. But you and I live in the place represented by the holy place and with its articles of furniture because atonement is not a 
just a one-step process. It's a three-phase process because it's not just about being declared righteous. It's about being empowered to live a new life and it's about the eradication of sin from the whole universe, not just from my heart and your heart, but from the whole universe. And we live in that in-between and that, my friends, is the process of sanctification. So the question I have today that we're looking at is how do we live in the in-between? And I've got five points. Is that, can you bear with me for five points? Okay, you'll, you might be thinking to yourself if you've read this before, yeah, but there's only three articles of, of furniture in the, in the sanctuary, in the holy place. Well, that's okay, just stick with me, okay? So, those three articles were in the north, the table of showbread or the bread of the presence. On the west, you have the altar of incense that was before the veil within the sanctuary. And on the south, you have the golden seven-branch lampstand. So we're going to break those three down, and then I've got two other points. The table of showbread, the altar of incense, and the golden lampstand. What do these three things mean? What is their significance on a real grand scale in the cosmos in our real life today? Let's start with the table of showbread. If you've got a Bible, I invite you to turn with me to Exodus, and we're going to look at these things in Exodus. They'll be on the screen for those that don't, but if you'd like to turn there, I'd welcome you to turn to Exodus chapter 25 in verse 30. Now, in the book of Exodus, it was revealed to Moses the pattern that he was supposed to make the sanctuary after. And in that pattern, he talked about these three articles of furniture in the holy place. This is what he says about the table of showbread. And it reads, And you shall set the showbread or the bread of the presence on the table before me. How often? I couldn't hear you. Always. This is powerful. There were 12 loaves of bread that were baked every week and brought in on the Sabbath day hot. And they were placed before God's presence in the holy place. Hello, Summer. You gonna come preach with me? Just hand the mic over. How many loaves of bread were there? 12. Representative of one for every tribe, which was the picture. You wanna give me a high five? Good girl. <laughs> I'm just joining the club, Caitlin. I'm like, I'm, I'm about at the place where my daughter's gonna start doing these things and I love it. By the way, let's just give some encouragement to all of these young moms and dads, right? Because isn't it a blessing to have kids in our church? I tell you what, it's a sad thing when you're in a church and there's, there's no sound of little laughter or little tears because, man, that's, that's the next generation. We're only ever one generation away from extinction. You know that, right? As a people, as the people of God, right? The Christian faith is gone in one generation if we don't pass the torch. It's powerful, man. All right, I'm back on track. Sorry. So how many loaves of bread were there? 12, representative of one loaf of bread for each of the tribes. So what's this picture? The bread is available, represented the bread of the presence for all of the church. Everybody who is a believer, it's all there. And I want you to just highlight, you're gonna see some highlighted words. How often was it there in God's presence? Always. Now what in the world might this symbolize? Now we're gonna do a bit of jumping. Um, we're gonna look at a couple of passages. If it's a bit too quick, they're up on the screen. In the Gospel of John, chapter 6, Jesus gives a, a very powerful and confronting message. And in that message, he says some very interesting things about something called bread. 
And so if we're trying to find out what this bread might symbolize, I think it would be wise to look throughout the rest of Scripture for where that symbol shows up. Jesus says in John 6.35, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. Earlier in the, in the piece, in John chapter 1, verse 14, it also declares of Jesus that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Right? Jesus has become flesh. He is the word of God who was present with God, who was God in the beginning, in John chapter 1, 1 through 4, who has made all things that have ever been made. The word became flesh. He is the bread of life. He is the word of God. And by extension, his words given to us in scripture are life. Agree or disagree? Agree. The Bible is God's inspired word. Point number one, how do we live in the in-between? If you wanna follow Jesus faithfully, if you wanna learn how to navigate between I've been set free from sin's penalty, how do I live as I am looking in anticipation, longing with all my heart and my soul for that day when Jesus comes, it starts, number one, with the word of God. And here's a question. We're gonna get real practical here for a moment. How often do you take the time in your personal life to open God's word and hear from the voice of God what's relevant to your present tense situation? How often am I in the word of God looking for God's wisdom looking to see Jesus lifted high? How often am I looking in that mirror, so to speak, and seeing my need? Because if I'm not doing it daily, I'm robbing myself of the first thing that God has given us on the journey of sanctification, the process of becoming like Jesus, the process of having the image of God recreated in us. Point number one is, am I in the word of God? Am I in it daily? And I'm going to put something out there, and this is not because I, don't, because I have this all under control and I'm, I'm like the perfect example. I'm not. I'm far from it. I find this as convicting, if not more, than probably most of you will. But let me ask you a simple question. If you pulled out your phone today and you said, let me check how many, how many minutes I've spent on social media, what would it read? If I looked on my, my internet tab browser history, how many hours have I spent on YouTube this week? or Netflix, or watching telly, or whatever it is for you. And then put that on one category and look at how many hours we invest in these things and then ask the question, how many hours did I give to Jesus? How often was I hungering and thirsting for righteousness? How often was I hungering and thirsting for the love of God so that I came to the place where God speaks and speaks life to me? And I'm not saying this to tell you, oh man, you need to be in the Bible 36 hours a day, right? That was a tongue-in-cheek statement. But it's a very valid and fair question because how we spend our time demonstrates where our loyalties lie. What is my God? Is my God the idol in my pocket? Right? We define ourselves by the things we can't live without. What are the things that I can live with or without? And is the word of God at the top of the list? Is it third? Is it fifth? Is it 47th? Is it even on the list? If you want to learn how to navigate in the in-between, point number one is, am I giving God the space and time to speak to me? 
Because we talk a lot about relationships, right? A relationship with Jesus. Well, guess what? A relationship starts with conversation and time, doesn't it? So point number one, if I want to navigate well through the how of the in-between, it's got to start by opening the words of God and allowing him to speak into my life. And I'm telling you right now, that's, at times that's going to be the most encouraging thing you've ever had. And at times it's going to be a little challenging. But the ultimate goal is so that you may come and receive life. Do you want that in your life? Are you studying the Bible on your own? Are you, are you in a group in the middle of the week? Do you... Do you come to the church and join for Sabbath school? There's so many opportunities around us. There's, we read this morning in our Sabbath school group, six billion copies of the Bible sold. It's the world's bestseller. How many of those are just gathering dust on somebody's shelf? Totally useless. doesn't matter if it's the bestseller. It matters if it's the most read and applied. Is that relevant? So the table of showbread was continually available before the presence of God. And so too, God's promises in his word are continually available to you. 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Are we availing ourselves of that? Point number two. The next article was the altar of incense. Interesting, the altar of incense, incense was a perfect square on top. And I was reading a book by a guy named Roy Adams. Not that I'm really into all these reading of books. It was recommended to me and I read it for the sermon. But um, he made this really good, I'm just gonna be fair and honest because I think sometimes you gotta just know that you don't have to be an academic to, for God to speak in your life. <laughs> amen, yes, amen. Be encouraged. But he made this interesting point. He said that the perfect square, which by the way, the, the most holy place is a perfect square. The holy place is two perfect squares put together and the whole courtyard boundary of the sanctuary is two perfect squares put together with the epicenters of those two perfect squares being the Ark of the Covenant and the Altar of Sacrifice. There's a lot of cool stuff in there. Why is a square interesting? Because a square was symbolic of perfection, divine perfection. And so it's pretty interesting that the Altar of Incense is, is a symbol of, of perfection when we find out what it's representative of. So check this out. If you're back in Exodus, turn with me to Exodus chapter 27, Verse 20 and 21. Exodus chapter 27, verse 20 and 21. And it reads, And you shall command the children of Israel that they bring you pure what? Oil. Pure oil of pressed olives for the light. In other words, the golden seven-branch lampstand to cause the lamp to burn how often? Continually. In the tabernacle of meeting, outside the veil, which is before the testimony, and Aaron and his sons shall tend it from evening until morning before the Lord. It shall be a statute forever to their generations on behalf of the children of Israel. I love this. What in the world could this be symbolic of? Before I move on and we talk about that, how often was this thing lit? Continually. Now remember, Quinton said something last week that just blew my mind. There was a morning and an evening sacrifice in general for sin, meaning that the offering for sin was available to you how often? 24 hours a day, seven days a week, the sacrifice of Christ is available to you. So too, the bread of showbread, right? The table of showbread was available continually. So too, the altar of incense was to burn continually, night and day. 
always available. In Revelation 5, verse 8, it says this. Now, when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders, this is in the vision of the throne room of God, they fell down before the lamb, which is Jesus, each having a harp. It's gonna be some good tunes up there. And golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. The saints just means those who put their faith in Jesus. So the incense is representative of what? Our prayers. And the high priest was always there offering up the incense, representative of our prayers, always being presented before God, interceded on behalf of us by the priest, by the high priest. Here's a question for you. Point number two, how's your prayer life going? And I'm gonna be real honest with you. My own experience, it's a lot easier to be in the word of God than it is to have conversations with the maker. That's my experience. I don't know if you can resonate with that. Often Adventist Christians are called people of the word and that's a good thing. But how often do we as Adventists emphasize the word and forget to emphasize the reality of prayer? Because is a conversation really a conversation if it's only one way? It's not. It's, it's a monologue. And who likes those? But here's a real question for you. How's your prayer life going? Do you spend time every day speaking to the God of the universe who is continually there to intercede on your behalf? Are you seeking for that? Now, I want to make a, a, a clear point here. If your prayers look like this, Dear God, thanks for the food. Please do this. Please do that. Amen. Peace out. If that's all your prayer life is, you are missing out. You are a starving person. Because the reality is, we're told, like in Philippians chapter 4, verse 7, he says, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication. Now, supplication means making requests. So what's the other word mean? Well, it must have a little bit more to do with our communication with God than just asking for things then, doesn't it? Confession, speaking to God about the real issues in your life, talking about the real things that are going on, having a real, personal, intimate connection with Jesus. And you can have that. Elijah was a man just like us, and when he prayed for three and a half years, the heavens didn't open and there was a drought over a whole nation. He was a man just like you and just like me, just a human being, connected to God through prayer. I apologize my, to my beautiful wife. That's my phone going off over there and it's in my bag. You're a legend. I told you formal stuff wasn't really my thing. Sorry to the internet people that are following along. But here's the point. How often do we really have honest conversation with God? Are you having that? We have a prayer group that meets here, a prayer meeting that meets here at 6.30 p.m. every Wednesday, New South Wales time. What time? 6.30 p.m. New South Wales every Wednesday right here. One of the founders of the, the Seventh-day Adventist Church, Ellen White, said that the prayer meeting is the pulse and it's the lifeblood of the church. But I don't see anywhere near this many people at prayer meeting ever. Do we really hunger and thirst to communicate with God? Are we praying on our own? Are we praying together? Do we, do we meet together? Do we, do we call our friends, our family in the, in the faith and say, hey, can you pray for me? Hey, can I pray for you? Are we praying for one another? Real honest prayer. A number of years ago, I did this challenge. It was a 40 days of prayer challenge. And I, I remember that in that, there were a couple of things. You might think, well, how do I pray? How, what am I gonna talk about? Well, number one, it's an opportunity to connect 
real and honest with God. And as I did this prayer challenge, I, I created a space. One of my favorite passages in all of Scripture is Mark 135, and it says that Jesus, while it was very dark and very early in the morning, he got up and went out to a deserted place, and there he prayed. Jesus made it his habit every day to start his day with communication with the Father. And so I started trying to follow this practice, and I, I found a place outside because I just, I don't know about you, but you, you wake up, and then you roll over, and you're like, I'll just pray right here. And then you're asleep for another half an hour, and then you got to get to work because who can pray in their bed? If that's you, you have a gift. <laughs> get up, walked outside so I couldn't fall asleep with the dew on my bare feet by this creek. And I went to the same place, and I started praying there every day. And I had a list. This was all instructions from the book to teach me how to pray because... You know, we need teaching. And I picked five people that I was supposed to pray for and I started praying for them every day, people that didn't know Jesus. Praying for other people and their real issues and then trying to find ways. How do I communicate with that person? How do I reach out to that person? To be intentional, to pray, not just for myself, but for others. To talk to God about the real issues. God, I am struggling with this issue, with that issue. What's going on? And I'd go and I'd talk to God. And it got to the point where it used to be that when I would just go for a walk and I'd come to that that place where that little jetty was at Dora Creek, I'd get there and my mind would automatically be carried to, what am I gonna talk to Jesus about? Because time and place creates a habit. And I could go to this special place, not even with the intention of praying, and I would just start going, oh, what do I need to talk to God about? Do you have a place like that? Because you can make that. You can have that happen in your life. Point number two, how's your prayer life going? Are you praying regularly? Do you really have honest conversation with God? These guys in the Bible, Abraham, Moses, when you read how they talk to God, it sounds pretty back and forth. It's not always clear cut. It's a bit messy, but it's honest. God already knows what's banging around in your head. Are you gonna tell him the truth? Because God's ready to hear you. Point number three, the golden lampstand. Back in Exodus chapter 30, if you're following along in a Bible, Exodus chapter 30, the golden seven-branch lampstand. And it reads, it says, Aaron shall burn on it sweet incense every morning when he tends the lamps. I'm feeling like this is the wrong one. This is the right one? This is the altar of incense. Didn't I just do that? No, I did those backwards, didn't I? That was the lampstand. I just got some things mixed up. Apologies. We were talking about the altar of incense. Did I just do that? That's embarrassing. That's all right. We'll move on. <laughs> I was talking about the altar of incense before. Man, that's embarrassing. Okay, scratch that and just, just catch these things up. So the altar of incense was representative of prayer, which was this passage. Aaron shall burn on it sweet incense every morning when he tends the lamps, he shall burn incense on it. And when Aaron lights the lamps at twilight, he shall burn incense on it, a perpetual incense before the Lord throughout your generations. That was the appropriate verse that connected to Revelation. Is that making sense? Oh man, I messed that one up, didn't I? Good thing that God's gracious. All right, so the golden lampstand then was what we read before. <laughs> and that's Exodus 27. Now, let me just read it from here. You shall command the children of Israel that they bring the pure oil before of pressed olives for the light to cause the lamp to burn continually. In the tabernacle of meeting, it shall burn. So what is the golden lampstand representative of? 
Revelation 1 verse 20 says this. The mystery of the seven stars, John was in in Revelation and he saw a picture of Jesus among seven golden lampstands. Check this out. The mystery of the seven stars, Jesus says, which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. The lampstand represents what? Represents the church throughout all ages. But not only that, The way that a lampstand worked, right? If you take a candlestick and you put it on your table, what what do you put in the the candlestick to make it burn? A candle or an oil or something to make it burn. So the lampstand, like a candlestick, that's the church. But if the church doesn't have something in there to burn, what good is it? Well, check this out. It goes further. In Revelation 4, verse 5, and it says this. Again, that vision of the throne room of God. It says, and from the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices. Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God or the sevenfold spirit of God. In other words, the perfect spirit of God. So you have a lampstand, but on that seven-branch lampstand in the sanctuary, what were there? There were seven lamps of oil burning. And the key here is the lampstand doesn't bring any light unless it's got the lamp on it burning, correct? And the lamp is the Holy Spirit. You cannot, even as the church, represent God accurately if you don't have the Holy Spirit in your life. Jesus says it this way in Matthew chapter 5, verse 14 through 16. He says, you're the light of the world to his believers. A city that's set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket. But but what do you do with the lamp then? You put the lamp on a lamp stand and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. And here's the point. As a member of the body of Christ, as a member of God's church, and I'm not talking about membership like necessarily on the church book, but I'm talking about a member of God's body because you've put your faith in Jesus Christ. You cannot represent God accurately unless you have the Holy Spirit. You cannot be a good witness if you are not filled with the Spirit of God. Before Jesus sent the disciples out to be witnesses in Acts 1 verse 8, he said to them, wait for the Spirit to come with power and then you'll be my witnesses everywhere. Everywhere. And here's the point. We need to study the word of God. We need the promises of God enacted in our life. We need to pray to God. We need to communicate with with God two ways. But the third part that is often missing from the average Christian's experience in the in-between that we live in waiting for Jesus' return that is vital to our own spiritual growth and health is personal witness. As a follower of Jesus, I basically had this on the back burner for a decade. (laughs) Is that relatable? But your works and your words are supposed to uplift and glorify Jesus. You don't get given the light of the world. Jesus says he's also the light of the world. You don't get that and then hide it in the dark because it's useless. It doesn't help anybody. God's given us that light and turned us into the light of the world by giving us the spirit to be an active witness in our work, in our home, in the church, 
in the local community, in every sphere of life, that we are to have an influence for the good of the kingdom of heaven. Now let me give you an example of why I think this is so important. A number of years ago, a number of years ago I came to do the Arise program, which is a 13, then 15-week discipleship program. And I was questioning my faith, and I was knocking on doors and giving Bible studies to people. And I remember this lady, Patricia. I knocked on the door, and this dude came to the door, and I was like, hey, I'm doing this spiritual survey, la-da-da-da-da, would you like to answer some questions? He's like, ah, the footy's on. Come back later. And I was like, yes, an option, an opportunity. So I came back the next day, and I was like, oh, this is going to be great. He said, yes, so many no's. And lo and behold, a chick walks the door, and I was like, no, you're not the person who said yes. Why you? Got having a conversation. She was like, oh, yeah, I'll do, the, I'll do your survey, blah, blah, blah. No, no, no. We get through it, and then at the end, she wasn't that interested, but I just said, hey, is there anything I could pray for in your life? And she stopped and just shared, oh, yeah, yeah, that'd be great. And so I prayed with her, me and my friend Akil, and we prayed for her at the door. And then after that, conversation got a little bit further, and she said, we found out she was interested in studying the Bible. She was open. I was led by the Spirit to pray for her, and an opportunity came. And I'll tell you, I remember we were doing a Bible study. There was a few Bible studies in. We were doing a Bible study on the second coming of Jesus Christ. Now remember, my faith is dwindling. I'm doing these Bible studies, and I'm not sure if I even believe it. And I'm sitting here, and I'm like, so is it clear from what we've read here in Scripture that um, Jesus is coming soon? And she's like, it is. It's so clear. Yeah, I guess you're right. It is kind of clear. <laughs> and we look at the next one, and I'm like, oh, is it, is it clear from what we're studying here that um, when Jesus comes, it's going to be visible. Everybody's going to see it. And she's like, I can't believe it. Everyone's going to see it. It's so plain from Scripture. She's like, it's amazing. And I was like, yeah, yeah, that is kind of amazing. <laughs> and we go on, and we get to another one. I'm like, is it, is it clear from Scripture that... Um, when Jesus comes, every eye is going to see and it's going to be a loud cataclysmic event and no, no one's going to miss it. And she's like, this is amazing. And by the end of the Bible study, I'm like, this is amazing. Jesus is coming soon. And I tell you this story because that is a true story. And I went from the beginning of the Bible study going, I don't even know if Jesus is real and coming back and who cares, to the end of the Bible study. And I was like, you're right. Jesus is coming back soon and it matters. And my faith, which was just barely had a pulse, had just gotten resuscitated and it was starting to come back to life. So here's the, here's the point. The third thing that we need in our Christian experience in this journey of sanctification is that we as followers of Jesus, if you're a follower of Jesus, you need to share Jesus with others, not just for them, but even for your own spiritual survival. We're not called to be given the light of the world to be filled with the Holy Spirit and to keep it to ourselves and hide it in a corner and pretend like we don't have anything to share with the world. We're supposed to go and become like Jesus. So those are the three articles from the holy place of the sanctuary. The word of God, prayer, and spirit-filled witness. Emphasis on spirit-filled because you can't do it yourself. You're a terrible witness and so am I. It's the Holy Spirit working in us that creates opportunity for us to be a decent witness for Jesus Christ. And if you get anything out of what I've shared today, that's an, 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 an evidence of that. 
You see what I'm saying? Okay, now I said there were five things and the timer just hit zero and Chris is gonna be like, dude, you're supposed to stop talking, but I don't care. You mind if we go through two more? Okay. How often were all three of these things before the veil in the holy place of the sanctuary? The bread was there 24 hours a day, seven days a week. How often was the high priest interceding with the prayers on the altar of incense? 24 hours a day, seven days a week. How often was Aaron supposed to come in as the high priest and make sure the lamps were lit and had enough oil to keep going? 24 hours a day, seven days a week. In Hebrews, it says Jesus is our high priest. Jesus is the one who is mediating for us in heaven. He's the one who mingles his righteousness with our prayers. Jesus is the one who is administering the promises of God with power to us to be lived out in our lives. Jesus is the one who says, I will send you the Holy Spirit so that you may be my witnesses. And his intercession is continual. Check this out. Hebrews 7.25. If you've got a Bible, I invite you to turn there for yourself. We're almost done. But don't miss this because those other points are, are only as significant as they connect to this point. Hebrews 7, verse 25, it says this of Jesus Christ. Therefore, he, Jesus, is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus is in the heavenly sanctuary right now mediating on your behalf so that your prayers are heard 24 hours a day, seven days a week, continual intercession, so that 24 hours a day, seven days a week, the promises of God can be lived out in your life. So 24 hours a day, seven days a week, the Holy Spirit will be sent to you so you can be an active witness for Jesus. Continual intercession means that we have continual access. The question is, are we making the most of that? Are we using that access? When you go home this week, are you gonna take advantage of the opportunity every day this week to connect to Jesus? Are you going to seek for his access because he's living to intercede for you? He always lives to make intercession on your behalf. Will you grasp it? Will you take hold of it? Last point. Sanctification is the work of a lifetime. Anybody have any thoughts on what this might be? Stocks. And some of you are like, oh, yeah, bad news. Okay, this is a, a snippet of Dow Jones Industrial Average, one of the stocks. Now check this out. Your spiritual life looks a lot like this, and so does mine. Sometimes it's up and it's down, and it's up and it's down, and sometimes it looks like, man, I'm making some great progress, and then boom! How did I end up lower than I started? Anybody ever been there? I've been there over and over in my life. The last 17 years of following Jesus have looked a lot like that. But you know what's beautiful? This is just a zoomed-in picture of one moment on the Dow Jones industrial average over the years. 
And what looks like in the moment the most catastrophic disaster that could never be fixed is actually just a moment where it went up and went down, but the overall trajectory goes like that. You might think to yourself in this journey of trying to follow Jesus between I've, I've accepted Jesus as my Lord and Savior and I'm waiting for him to come and you're like, man, my life looks like a train wreck. But just remember that God's work is not just in the moment. It's through the whole of your life. And you might in the moment get so stuck in the view that, oh, this part right now is looking this difficult circumstance, difficult situation. I haven't heard from God in a long time. It's just been so quiet. But I want you to realize that when you zoom out, the process of sanctification in your life, the process of Jesus forming his image in you, recreating you now, giving you power over sin in your life is a process that looks like this. It's up, it's down. Sometimes when you zoom in, it's a little chaotic, but overall the upward trajectory is present and it is clear. I may not be the man today that I want to be, but praise God I'm not the man I used to be. Ellen White, one of the founders of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, said it this way in a book called Acts of the Apostles, page 560. If you're interested, I'd recommend you read this chapter. It's insane. In a good way, it's, it's mind-blowing. Check this out. She says, sanctification is not the work of a moment, an hour, a day, but of a lifetime. It's not gained by a happy flight of feeling. Did you catch that? Your feelings are not necessarily a reliable metric for your spiritual journey. It's not gained by a happy flight of feeling, but it's the result of constantly dying to sin and constantly living for Christ. Wrongs cannot be righted, nor reformations wrought in the character by feeble, intermittent efforts. It's only by long, persevering efforts, sore discipline, and stern conflict that we shall overcome. Now, there are many people in the church, and I'm going to speak to an in-house issue here for a moment, who when we talk about this, they get on one side of the fence and be like, oh, we're going to, we all got to be perfect and get it all sorted out, and we're going to be here and slam people because they're not sinless in their life yet. But then there's there's a, and there's a problem with that, clearly. But then there's a problem on the other side of the fence where we say, oh, yeah, but nothing else matters. I've just, I just accept Jesus and how I live is irrelevant. I'll just do whatever I want. Go back to the old me. The old man can party. But she slams both of those things right at the get-go. She slams both of those ideas because they're both false. And both of them will lead you to despair and will probably lead you away from Jesus. But check this out. She says, we know not one day how strong will be our conflict the next. So long as Satan reigns, we shall have self to subdue, besetting sins to overcome. So long as life shall last, there will be no stopping place, no point which we can reach and say, I have fully attained. Sanctification is the result of lifelong obedience. It's a journey. It's like that stock market scene. And I wanna invite the band up. I'm gonna play a song, one last song, and then we'll close with a prayer. It's a journey that you will continue to do throughout your life. And the question is, will you, will you continue the journey? Now, for some of you, it may be that you've not started this journey. But will you start the journey? Because the life with Jesus is up and down, but the trajectory is always up.
And when Jesus comes on high to take us home, to glorify us, it will all be worth it. It will all be worth it. As we play this last song, I wanna ask you the question, do you wanna come and experience that in your life? Do you want to come and experience the goodness and the grace of God in your life? To live in the in-between, led by the Spirit, do you want to access the intercession that is continually made on your behalf, whether you accept or reject it? And as you think about that, as we sing this last song, I just invite you to take some, some quiet reflection and talk to Jesus about what's really going on in these areas.